Help us again now, I pray. You've been with us, and I, and I do pray, God, that we've engaged with you. If we haven't, I, I pray you just sort of <laughs> deep grab deep in us and pull us inside out so that we know you're here, that you're real, that we must engage with you. Father, now as we hear your word, I pray that you make it real to us, because it is. Father, that it digs deep within us, exposes that which needs to be exposed, heals which needs to be healed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Colossians in chapter 3, please. Colossians chapter 3. We've been circling this passage for over a month, and we're still here. So I want to read, again, verses 1 through 17, and simply take up two words. In the midst of that. Colossians in chapter 3 please. Verse 1 here the word of God. If then you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore. What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I want, if God will help me, to take up just two words in this list in verse 12 humility and meekness these character traits if you will are related as we've been talking already this morning to the new self related to this new creation related related to this new self which is being renewed after knowledge in the image of its Creator, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, if you will, this, this sense of, of knowing who God is so that we can know who we are. If we've been created in his image, if we've been created to reflect him, we've been created to glorify him. We've been created in such a way that people should see us and have a sense of who he is. If that's true, then we must know who he is in order for us to reflect him, to reflect him adequately. We mentioned over and over again, this is sort of the theme of, 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 of our faith, that we were created to image him, that image was broken because of sin, rebellion against him, bringing death to us so we're no longer living life 
For life is that which is lived to glorify God, to live in his image. That's real life. But because of the work of Christ, he's restoring us, renewing in us that very image of God. And so the question for us is, well, what is that image? What are we to do? Well, he says, put off these things which aren't consistent with it, that are consistent with the old self, consistent with that self that's united to, to, to the sin of Adam and Eve, to the sin of Adam, in its, its condemnation and guilt uh, and corruption. And now to put on these things which are consistent with following after Christ, consistent with this new self, consistent with the very image of Christ, for he is the perfect reflection of who God is. And he's the perfect reflection of who we're to be. And so we're being conformed to his image. We're being renewed in his likeness. That's who we now are. And so the apostle says that we're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, uh, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven us, that we're to put on love. That's the very essence of who God is, the very essence of our Lord Jesus. Last Sunday, we we thought through these ideas of compassion and mercy and kindness, and we said they reflect who God is. God is compassionate and merciful and kind, and we know that. We know it because we've experienced that mercy and compassion and kindness of God. Scripture says it's the kindness of God that, that leads us to repentance, And when we see that mercy and compassion and kindness in the coming of our Lord Jesus, God saw us in our misery, the misery caused by sin, and he sent his son to take that up for us, to take our sin upon himself, the penalty of it, that we might be forgiven to live, that we might live, so that we might be declared righteous in his sight, accepted by God. And he says, well, that's how God is. Now, I want you to to be that in this new self. I want you to be merciful and compassionate. I want you to be like Jesus in that sense, if you will, so that when you see people in need, it should move you, as our need moved God to send Jesus, that the, the needs of others really should move us. And to the degree that they don't, he says, I want you to confess that and put that away, that coldness of heart. And I want you to pray that God would give you this mercy and compassion so that like Jesus, we saw the leper and touched him. And we'd see the needs of others and touch them and help them. And that all of that would be seen in acts of kindness, not random acts of kindness, but compassionate acts of kindness. Kindness moved because there's a heart behind it that desires to see if someone helped. So it would be like that. And now he says, I want you to put on humility and meekness, humility and meekness. This little word humility really literally means a lowliness of mind. That is an attitude of mind that sees oneself as low. Now that's not very popular to say in America, but really anywhere in any culture. The Greek culture in which Paul had, was writing didn't like that word humility at all, that lowliness of mind at all. They know all kinds of ways to fudge around it. But, but, but Paul said, no, 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 this is a character trait that's a virtue, a good thing, part of the graces that God gives to us and how it is that we're to image our Lord Jesus, this humility. Because it isn't a making of oneself low when you are great. But it's a proper estimate of oneself. 
a real, true understanding of who it is that we are. And there's a way to get there, and I'll help, I think, flesh that out in a moment. Meekness is this expression of humility. It's, it's living out this humility. It's, it's living out before men that, yes, this lowliness of mind. Some have said humility is who we are in the presence of God. Meekness, therefore, is who we are in the presence of others when we've been in the presence of God. Humility being who we are in the presence of God. Our understanding of who we are when we're in His presence. Meekness is living out in the presence of other people who we are in the presence of God. These two are very much related, therefore. The humble person lives it out in meekness. The meek person has a spirit of humility. So let's walk through that. These amazingly are true of our Lord Jesus. Here is one who is eternally the Son of God. Uh, It's hard to get our head around that, but this is true. Eternally the Son of God. And he became incarnate, God in the flesh. Now it's interesting that just becoming a human being wasn't the biggest part of Jesus' humility. He became one who was despised even by men as we read in our call to worship this morning. Turn quickly, if you have a Bible, turn quickly to Philippians and and chapter 2. If you're in Colossians, it's just a couple of pages to your left. Philippians and chapter 2, this passage where the apostles enjoining us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 1, he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, that in a sense of lowliness of mind, and if you have that, then the next phrase makes sense, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What does that take? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sense in which the interests of others compete with our own interests in such a way that they win the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind, all right? To have that kind of a mind. How many have that kind of a mind? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Part of this new self, united to him, this is the mind that comes along with it. This is the understanding of life and self that comes along with being united to Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He thought of himself as low. So he was able then to take something on that only one who thought of himself as low could take on. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You and I have no idea the lowliness of death on a cross. Uh, In Paul's day, nobody had jewelry in the shape of a cross. It wouldn't be, it it would be as odd. You know, if you would walk into a restaurant and you would see somebody with a necklace with a hangman's noose around their neck, 
you would go down a few tables, right? There wouldn't be somebody you'd worry about that person. Why in the world are they wearing that? Or if in more, uh, I suppose, contemporary times, if I don't know what the symbol of waterboarding would be (laughs) or some form of torture, but if you had that as a piece of jewelry... Well, in, the, in, in Paul's day, if you were a cross, people would come close to you because that was, that, was, that was the deepest humiliation. The scum of the earth were crucified on crosses. And Jesus humbled himself to that point. Why? Because it was that and more that he took on in his humility when he took on the guilt of our sin. That's the lowest of the low. Not simply to be a human being in weakness. That's not the lowest of the low. The, 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 the lowest is to be cursed by God. And he was. For us, you see. And he took that upon himself. The humility of Jesus. We, we see a peak of that when Jesus uh, washed the feet of his disciples. That's almost an easier one for us to get our minds around than the whole cross thing. Because, because we relate to that, because that's something we might be forced someday to do. You remember Jesus and gathered with his disciples for that last Passover meal, and, and they came, and, and there was no host really at the, at the, at the, at the meal, no one to, to serve others, if you will. So what did Jesus do? Well, he stripped himself down, took a, a towel, and he went around and did that demeaning task that only a, 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 a despised servant would do, and that is he washed their feet. If you had a snapshot of that and you asked the question, who's the master here? He wouldn't have picked him. But he was the master who was serving in humility. Made himself low, if you will. Thought of himself, nothing too low. I can serve these very ones, even though I'm the eternal son of God. Jesus said, it came, Jesus said this, the son of God said this, I've come not to be served. This is an amazing thing. That's one of the astounding things about both Judaism and Christianity, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Is here is a God who actually comes and helps his people. Here's a God who actually comes and serves his people. It's an astounding thing. It isn't like a human master who's, who's taxing us to death. It's this God who comes to his people to bless them and to serve them and so the amazing thing if you can go if you can think through from God the son to God the father the father sending the son it's a sense in which the son the father is saying I'm coming to serve you to help you to do for you what you can't do rather than require something of you I'm coming to take care of that for you I'm coming to serve you Jesus I've come to Not to be served, but to serve and to give my life. This is the definition of a service. To give my life as a ransom for many. And what's amazing is Luke in Luke chapter 12 gives us a picture of even when we're with Jesus and in the consummation, when we're with Jesus in glory and when there's this great feast, who's serving at the table? Of the master. He continues through all eternity because we're the needy ones. We're the ones who need to be served. He needs nothing. And so he comes, he humbles himself to serve us. Matthew in chapter 11, please, about Jesus. You notice, I hope, that we mustn't ever get into us 
until we first get into God, all right? We must never think about ourselves until we first understand Him. In order to understand us, we have to understand Him and understand if we were going to think of our own meekness and humility, we first have to begin with Him and realize it's true of Him in some way. And so it's transferred then to us. If not, we become frustrated or we're just doing it to, 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 to prove that we can or we're forcing ourselves into it. No, no, this is the very way of life. This is the very image of Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Familiar verses, I think, to some. Come to me, Jesus says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now a yoke, you can think of it in the agricultural terms, of two oxen, if you will, or whatever, being yoked together, pulling together. We know if they're pulling unevenly, then there's a lot of chafing that goes on. If you have one really spirited one and one less spirited one, which is kind of... Jesus and me, but, but one, one very spirited, one less spirited. There, there can be a great deal of chafing because this yoke is on each of them and, and it's pulling and they're pulling differently. And, and this notion of yoke then became a figurative term, a figure of speech, a metaphor, if you will, for slavery, for any kind of a burden that you would be hooked to that would be a difficult thing to pull. And so Jesus says... Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle, that is meek, and lowly in heart, that is humble. You think about Jesus, the Lord of glory. He could be coming and saying, pick this up and move it, would you? Or do this or do that. But he says, no, 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 I'll come with you. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll be yoked with you. I'll pull with you. And understand that, that my yoke is easy. This burden is light. Why? Because I'm going to unburden you from the guilt of your sin. So in the course of life, you needn't worry about being condemned by God. Because if you're with me, if you're yoked to me, then you don't have the burden of having to obey in such a way to earn the merit of God. I'm going to give you that. We start there. And I'm with you, strengthening you all the way. I call you nothing to do nothing, then I'm not with you. That's why my commands are on a burden, because I'm with you to help you through them, you see. And so there's no chafing, he says. We're pulling this. You're pulling this with me. My yoke's easy and light, because don't worry. I understand your frame. I know who you are. I'm your merciful and faithful high priest. I've been where you've been. I understand what it is to be a human being. I want to understand what it is to live this life. So hook with me, will you? Yoke with me and you'll find it easy and light, because this is real life. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the yoke that you've always been to have he says I'm gentle you can trust me I'm with you I'm not going to take you to a place but I won't give you the strength to pull I'm not going to take you to a place that will crush you because I'm with you I might feel that way come on let's get out of the figurative stuff and get into today but we know what Jesus is saying I'm with you in the midst of that and this is really the way and of all the ways that you could go, this is the lightest and easiest of ways. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said that school is easy if you study. <laughs> Most of us say, I know, the studying, that's the hard part. Well, Jesus said, this will be easy wherever I take you because we'll be doing it the right way. And you'll be hooked to the right one. You'll be 
looking to the right one to help you and strengthen you and I'll be with you. The circumstance will be different, difficult, but he says, life is easy if you're yoked to me. Come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Another way of understanding this idea of being lowly in heart is that Jesus is restful. In him you can come to him and find rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's our Lord Jesus, this very one. Prophet Isaiah, and here, just since it's right here in Matthew 12, you won't have to flip all the way back to Isaiah, but in Matthew 12, he quotes Isaiah concerning Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, he healed them, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, Jesus didn't come uh, screaming and hollering. He came walking and teaching and healing and blessing. That's what he did. Well, there were times he was spirited, no doubt, but, but, but the, the, the essence of his life, the, how he was known as this one who was relatively quiet. The, the, the prophet Isaiah said about him in another place, there wasn't anything about him that we would look upon him and, and be that impressed. And think about it, the very son of God walking the streets and nobody falling on their feet and worshiping him or nobody running the other way particularly. Here he is kind of hanging out with, with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and all of these people. And there's the Son of God in the midst of that. What kind of gentleness is that? What kind of restraint is that in the midst of this? And then this, a bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not quench. Think about that. What's it saying about the very touch of Jesus? You know, if you're walking in the fields and there's a reed sticking up and it's bruised, meaning it's just bent over, and oh, you brush up against it and it breaks off, right? A burning flax, you blow out a candle. It's right ready to be extinguished. It's at its most vulnerable place, coolest place. All it takes is a little bit, a little flick, and it's gone. The scripture says, Isaiah says of the Messiah, that Jesus comes and he touches that bruise and it doesn't break off. But it becomes stronger. He blows on that wick that's just about ready to go out and it doesn't extinguish it. But it bursts forth into flame. That's the gentleness of our Lord Jesus. That's his meekness. It isn't that he's weak. His the very power of God Almighty, the creator of all that is. We see Jesus' power and meekness all together at his arrest. You remember that, that Jesus was, entered into the garden there and, and there Judas came with the various soldiers to arrest Jesus. And they said to Jesus, uh, we're looking for you know, Jesus. And he says, uh, here I am. And what happened to them? They just fell flat. And, you know, I, in my own merry way, if I were Mel Gibson, uh, and I'm orchestrating all of this, producing all this, directing all this, I'd, scratch, I'd have Jesus kind of scratch his head and say, come on, guys, we've got to get this done now. Get up, will you? You know, his power was amazing, but his meekness 
because he was going to go through all of this and give himself. And there he was. And when he was with Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know, why won't you answer me? Don't you know that I have the authority to condemn you to death? And Jesus quietly said, no, no, you really don't. I'm going to let you. Because that's important to do. That fulfills the scripture. That's why I'm here. But, but realize you wouldn't have any power or authority at all if it wasn't given to you first by my heavenly father. Power. And yet the meekness, the gentleness of Jesus. He could have blown those soldiers away. He could have blown Pilate away. But he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to take this. Because this is best for them. And for them. And for them. And for them. And this glorifies my Father who is in heaven. That's the very meekness of Jesus. His humility. Now, we're called to that very thing. We're called to that kind of humility and that kind of, of meekness in our own lives. Let me just read you some scriptures. I know we've been sort of ODing on scripture this morning, but <clears throat> it's a good way to go. Um, here's a couple of... Um, commands for instance we read from Colossians chapter 3 put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved uh, compassion kindness and humility meekness Peter writes this likewise you who are younger be be subject to the elders close yourselves all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the uh, the proud but gives grace to the humble he writes to Timothy Paul does But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is something we're to be meek. This sense of being gentle to others. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So you might be smarter than them, you might know more than they do. And they're your opponents, and... And as Paul writes to Timothy, the implication there, they're not only your opponents, but it must be God's opponents if they're opposing you. But be gentle with them. Be gentle with them. Peter writes this later. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You don't need to bowl them over. You don't need to humiliate them. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He writes to them. The scripture speaks to us of great benefits for those who are in fact humble. Isaiah the prophet writes this, chapter 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high place and the holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. If you want God to live with you the way that he lives, the place he lives is in the hearts of those who are humble. Isaiah puts it this way in the next, in chapter 66. All these things my hands have made, God says, and so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at his word. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says of this tax collector who is praying and who cries out for God's mercy. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. James, we've quoted this already today. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thus, this one who is lowly in spirit, that's who we are to be. Remember when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he was teaching us about God and about ourselves. And he began with this expression, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We mustn't think that those are three distinct things or three distinct people, but they all go together. The one who is poor in spirit is the one who is in such a state, spiritually speaking, of bankruptcy that he realizes that he has nothing, that she has nothing to use as money or anything else to purchase from God his favor. In Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, this expression poor was almost a technical term for those who cried out to God because they realized they had nothing. They had no one else. They were completely devastated, so much so that they could not, and they knew it, rely upon themselves at all. And so Jesus now picks that up and he says, here, if you're poor in spirit, what that means is that you're so spiritually devastated and you know it, that you know that you're unable to do anything about that. That you live, stand under the very wrath of God. And you have no hope at all, so you cry out to him. When you get to that point of knowing your own poverty of spirit, then I'll give you the kingdom. And you'll enter the kingdom. That you'll live under my rule and reign, which is a rule of grace and mercy. The prophet Isaiah knew that. You remember there was a time when Isaiah went into the temple of the Lord and the scripture says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So you just get this vision of the temple. It was huge. The temple was huge. And know that his, just the train of his robe filled that up. You can only imagine what the rest of it must have been like. How scary that would be to see if, if all of a sudden in this room all you saw was someone's foot and it took up the whole room. You would think, Whoa, that's a big dude. What? I don't want to meet the rest of him, you know, if his foot is this big. Well, that's what Isaiah was seeing when he saw the train of God's robe filling the whole temple. He heard the angels round about singing, holy, holy. We sang this this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. And you remember, perhaps, Isaiah's response. Isaiah's response was when he saw the holiness of God, he saw his own spiritual poverty. And he fell on the ground before God and he said, oh, I'm coming undone. I'm going to blow up because I'm a man of unclean lips. That is, everything that comes out of me is unclean. And I live among a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the Lord of glory implied, how then can I ever live? That was his response of humility, if you will, before God. And you remember what happened? There was angels uh, flying round about and they took coals from the altar and they came and they purged his lips. They cleansed him because 
God gives grace to the humble. But he resists the proud. What's the difference between one who's proud and one who's humble? The difference is that the one who's proud says, I can. The one who's humble says, I can't. The one who's proud says, since I can, you stand and watch. I don't need your help. The humble says, I can't. Please come and help me. And when God sees that, which parenthetically is his work in us, when he sees that, then he comes to that humble one and he says, here's the kingdom, come on in. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, mourn over what? Well, there's lots to mourn over in human existence. There's much to mourn over because there's great sadness, because there's great devastation and great misery all the way from illness to broken relationships to insecurities and, and emotional difficulties and, and all the problems caused by uh, economic situations and, and starvation and injustice and all of that and war. There's much to mourn over, but all of that we realize exists because of a rebelliousness against God, because of sin. So blessed are those who mourn over sin globally and personally. He says, ah, that humble one who sees it, who gets it, who understands their own sin, I will comfort you. And he comforts us with forgiveness. He comforts us with promise. The promise being it's not always going to be like this. Trust me, walk with me. Uh, And the day will come when you'll see I'll bring everything right. He comforts us with that and then he says now blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth you see this humility that we have before God that that's how we become humble humility doesn't happen when we compare ourselves with each other now trust me there's plenty of people I could compare myself to who are better than I am in all kinds of ways that would humble me I just simply never do Every once in a while, but it makes me feel bad. So I compare myself to people that I think are lower than me, that I feel very good about myself. And that's our tendency, you see, if not corrected. But that isn't what breeds humility, obviously. It's when we enter into the very presence of God and we see him as Isaiah did. And then we realize we're the created one. Thus, just on that fact alone means we're utterly dependent upon God. We're the created ones. We're dependent upon Him for our food. We're dependent upon Him for our next breath. That should humble us in His presence. He needs us not at all. He's self-existent, self-sustaining, self-dependent. He's free. We're not. We need Him. Completely dependent. But then we think of ourselves in our sin. And that, that compounds our dependence. Because now we're under the very justice of God. Now we're under his wrath and condemnation. How are we ever going to get out of that? And we can't do enough. We tried. We can't do enough because we keep slipping. And, and we've slipped enough already. We've sinned enough already. That, 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 that we're already sunk. You see. And so we need him completely. And that humbles us. And we see ourselves there and then. And now God says, what I want you to do is live that attitude out in front of other people. Now you see, it's one thing for me to stand in the presence of God and admit that I'm a sinner worthy of hell. It's another thing when I stand before you and you tell me that. (laughs) I get very defensive. 
When you tell me about my weakness, when you tell me about my sin, when you tell me about my inabilities, now I'm willing to admit them in front of God, but come on, you're my peer. I don't want to hear it from you. But God says the meek one is that very one who can hear it and be all right, who can hear it and not be defensive. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London, the previous generation put it like this. He says, the meek man is one who hears what God and other people say about him and can't believe they speak so highly of him. If you only knew the half of it. Which you do know if you think about your own life and think about my life and think about we're both just people. And there's this sense of meekness. So, so we can't be gentle. We don't need to be Defensive. Who is this one who is humble and meek? This one who is humble and meek is the one who receives God's grace because he cries out for it, because he knows he, she needs it, because I can't, you must. If you don't, I'm sunk. This one who is humble and meek is one who fears God, who says that I, I revere you, I come to you. The scripture tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This one who is meek and humble is one who trembles, the prophet Isaiah tells us, at God's word. Why? Because we know our need. We know that we need God to define us. We need him to tell us who we are because we can't. Our view of ourselves is so distorted that we need God to tell us who we are. We need him to direct us. Why? Because our direction is so distorted, so wrong, takes us in the wrong direction, always has, that we need God to direct us. Well, what makes us happy, what makes us sad, what we love, what we hate is so distorted that we need God to to fill our passions and our emotions with right kinds of feelings about people and about things. So we tremble at his word and we go there and we say, make us wise, teach us. That's why, as I said a couple of weeks ago, if we're putting on these things, we'll find the putting off of the other things to, to go a little better. We're putting on meekness and humility. We can put off immorality more easily. Why? Because we tremble at God's word. And we go to him and we say, tell me about human sexuality. Tell me how that's to be. Speak to me about my own perversion so that I can leave it behind. Tell me which feelings are right to have, which feelings are wrong to have in this area of human sexuality. And so we can put off immorality. So when one says, I'm attracted to one of the same gender, then we say, oh no, that's not how God has defined our sexuality to be. So that when a married man is attracted to another woman, we go to the word of God in the scripture. No, 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 no. That's not how God has defined us to be. So we put that off. But on humility and meekness, we tremble at his word. We go to God and say, define me. I need you to do that. I can't depend upon my own definition of who I am. Direct me. I can't depend upon my own direction for life. Please be with me. Help me in that we tremble at his word. We find ourselves as humble and meek people, utterly grateful for our own salvation. These words... In this sentence in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, catch us up because it begins by put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those words just suck the air right out of us. That's how this happened. Jerry Bridges uh, uh, puts it like this. This is a very nice little book called The Fruitful Life, by the way. 
It's kind of a rewrite of his book called The Practice of Godliness. He puts it like this. He said, some time ago I read a statement in which the writer said he realized that the only difference between himself and another group of people was that perhaps he had a little more reliance upon the grace of God. I'm sure the writer meant this as an expression of humility. It sort of sounds that way, doesn't it? I mean, I, I need more grace than you do kind of thing. And I'm going to rely upon that. But, Jerry said, it left me uncomfortable. I have such respect for Jerry Bridges that when he's uncomfortable, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Um, sometimes I call him and ask him what his comfort level is about certain things and then I know how I'm supposed to feel. Um, somehow... I can't imagine the Apostle Paul finding any distinguishing difference in himself, even a little more reliance upon the grace of God. Instead, I find him saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Paul never compared himself favorably to the unbelievers around him. He was too overwhelmed with the fact that the grace of God was sufficient to reach even him. The truth of the matter is, folks, we have no good explanation as to why we believe and other people don't. Other than God has been gracious to us. And then we end the sentence there. In humility and meekness. One who's humble and meek is one, therefore, who can submit to others. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ can submit, that can put ourselves under. That's what the word submit means. To view yourself under rank. It's kind of a military term. It means to be under rank. To, to put yourself under another. We can submit to another by way of correction and instruction. Why? Because we're no better than the other. We can always receive from another. One who's meek and Humble is one who can serve another gently. Why? Well, because I can submit myself to your needs. Because your needs are significant needs, as even are mine. But I needn't put myself above you and say, mine are so much more important, I'll get to you next Tuesday. It's, it's, it's. I can submit myself to your Need at the moment. The one who is humble and meek is the one who can submit to the very circumstances that God puts us in. Because we know that he is the sovereign one. And we are not. And we can even submit to various circumstances that other people put us in because we know that God is even sovereign over them and the circumstances they put us in. I'll end with this. The psalm that we read responsively earlier, Psalm 37, is this secret to meekness. It begins with something we didn't read in our responsive reading, but it was at least expressly, it was implied, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Obviously there's those who are doing evil again to David, who's writing this psalm. And, this, and, and, and he's saying to himself, don't, don't worry about them. Well, think about that. Think about being persecuted. Think about somebody treating you unjustly, hurting you. And a friend coming and saying, don't fret about that. <laughs> You'd punch them in the nose. Well, how can you even say that? 
The next line is, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give your, he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. That is your evil. You get into this, then you're going to be sinning as well. So don't fret it. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, you'll not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land, delight and delight themselves in abundance of peace. That's so counterintuitive. We think the strong will inherit the land, but you know that never happens. Hitler didn't, Stalin didn't. The businessman who takes over everything dies. Leaves it to somebody else who's likely to run it into the ground. Even think in the animal world, the eagle is on the endangered species list. Sparrows are all over the place. <laughs> Lions and tigers are endangered. I've got more rabbits in my yard than I can even imagine. They're just fine. The end of the day, it's going to be the rabbits, not the lions, right? What's the point of all that? The point is, trust God. Humble yourself. Have the right understanding of who we really are. And we're not all that. Live that out in front of others. Be gentle. You can be. Because God is for you. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be with us, I pray. That we would, in fact, trust you. Rely upon you, not fret. Even when evil comes against us, even when circumstances turn against us. And we can live that way, kindly, gently, humbly. Trembling at your word, being grateful to you for our salvation. Submitting to others and still helping them in their need, even when we're in our own needs. May we trust you. Father, I pray this for all of us, especially for those who are suffering in particular ways today. You know who they are. Many of us have names popping in our minds right now of people in great difficulty. We lift them to you. They may allow their circumstance to humble them in a good way. That they would trust in you more. Father, for those who are in missions, I pray this prayer that as they go about their work, as Jesus went about his work, that a bruised reed they'll not break, a burning flax they'll not snuff out. Pray for Kelly and Marietta Lieben, good fathers, they transition to Texas. Bless them. Pray for Jeff McKinney and his role as an army chaplain be with him. I 
pray for Rick Mumford as he leads uh, Douglas County Young Life. And that work, I pray. Father, that we as followers of Christ would be known as those who are compassionate and kind, those who are humble and meek. Father, that would be known for our patience and our forbearance and the forgiveness that we give, the love that simply oozes out of us. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.